trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our official slogan here is that we revel in wrong think. And it's not because it's cool and trendy. Although someday it might be. Right? The guy's got a hope. <laughs> no, it's because it's more of a survival mechanism in a time where finding the truth is, let's just say it's a lot tougher than it used to be. I shared this on yesterday's show. I still maintain, if you are a person who's serious about knowing what's going on, you're going to have to be a hunter and a good one at that in order to track down the information that actually adds up. Why? Well, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of disinformation. And on top of all of that, you have various algorithms as well as human and AI fact checkers doing their best to keep you from getting too close to the actual truth. So, yeah, you got your work cut out for you. Also, there's the uh, the possibility that there's enough going on that we really can't know everything. So at some level, you got to be able to step back and say, you know what, it's okay if I don't uh, have the latest lowdown on every little thing that's happening, particularly in Washington, D.C. I get it for a lot of people. It's interesting. It's, you know, maybe it's entertaining. But the sooner we get to focusing on things that actually count, the better it's going to be. Case in point, spoke to a friend yesterday, hadn't talked to him in a while, just he'd he'd crossed my mind. I thought, man, I got to reach out and see how he's doing. And the comment he made when we first started to talk was he says, hey, I took your advice and I've been on a media fast. And certainly that does sound like, you know, I I recommend do it on a regular basis. Take a little break from media and see if the world starts looking normal again. Well, it started looking so normal that my friend says it's been more than 30 days and I'm I'm not going back. Now, he's a hardworking, productive member of society. To say, well, he's just retreated or he stuck his head in the sand. He's not doing anything. He's not doing his part. No, he's he's doing his part and then some. In that he is a productive, hardworking member of society. A great dad raising a wonderful family. But he's choosing not to devote as much of his attention to you know, whatever is on the screen. Now, I'm not saying that you better do this too or you're not a good person. I'm just saying that takes some pretty serious willpower to do but according to my friend it's 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 paying off in in great dividends starting with peace of mind yes there's there's crazy weird stuff going on in the world if you're looking for atrocities and things like that oh yeah you can find them somebody did a pretty funny uh, parody yesterday about this guy who just he just has to keep reflexively checking all the uh, the atrocities, you know, on his on his phone. And here's this this video of this guy, and he's just like wincing. Oh, oh, yeah, that's terrible. But but he has to look. He has to remind himself of what we're up against. And and I'm sorry, it's going to sound like I'm criticizing, and I kind of am, but only because I've been there before. The enemy driven, and people who are prone to enemy driven thinking kind of have to be led into that emotional space 
where, look, you need to see, you need to watch these terrorists sawing off people's heads so you know what we're up against. Now, I disagree with this. I mean, you've, if, if you've ever seen, you know, one of those snuff videos, it's, it's not going to leave anything good on your soul. It's not going to leave you, ha oh, I am charged up and I am now, you know, ready for the fight. Now I really understand the evil that we're facing. That's not how it works. Can I tell you what it does? It damages your spirit. It damages your soul. Now, how it does this, I can't really explain. I can just tell you, though, I've experienced it firsthand. Years and years ago, back when uh, there was a lot of fighting going on in Chechnya, I made the mistake of pulling up a video of uh, some, I guess they were, I guess they were Chechens who had captured a young Russian conscript who was fighting in, in Chechnya. And I couldn't read Cyrillic, so I couldn't tell, you know, what exactly, what is this video about? I just saw that uh, they had somebody on the ground, and I clicked play, and, you know, long story short, they cut this guy's throat. And for days afterward, I found myself going, oh, why did I watch that? It just, it disturbed me. And, and it wasn't just because, yeah, it was, uh, it was gory, and it was gruesome, and it was horrible to hear this guy gurgling and trying to scream as he's drowning in his own blood. That was pretty awful. But to me, the worst part was it, it did something to me. Spiritually, I felt wounded for several days afterwards. And, and not in the sense that, oh, that was such a terrible thing to watch. But just, I don't know. It, it left me feeling dirty. And so I don't recommend it to people. And frankly, when I talk to people who've actually been to war, people who've actually experienced combat, to a person, they'll say, no, don't go watching those videos. Nothing good is going to come from it. But unfortunately, right now we have a lot of people who are caught up in this mindset of, you know, well, we've got to do something. We've got to go out there and, and fight back, you know, because look at this evil. And then they need to remind themselves, look, here, here's the burned babies. Here's, here's the decapitated people. Here's people being shot. Look, all of that stuff is awful. And the people doing it are awful. But let's zoom back just a little bit. Let's try to keep a little bit of perspective. Were you not outraged over, for instance, all of the civilian casualties in Yemen when the Saudis are, are putting down, you know, this Houthi uprising? Because they're doing it with American-made weapons. You know, same as Israel is using American-made weapons to, to lay waste to, uh, to Gaza. It's no cleaner and it's no more desirable to disassemble people via high-tech military hardware than it is to go in and do a terrorist attack like Hamas did in, in Israel. Now, I get it. There are those who say, well, that's just, you know, you're, you're talking the equivalency game. I'm just saying, look, if you feed your mind on that stuff, first of all, if you're not there, if, or if you're not directly affected, you don't actually know someone who is directly connected to those attacks, you're choosing to opt into the outrage. I get this may not be a very popular point of view, but I, but I got to say this. You're giving your attention, particularly your emotional attention, to something over which you have no control. Do you ever stop and think, why do we do that? What's the purpose? Do I just, I want to wallow in the anger? I want to wallow in, in the, uh, the outrage so I can feel justified in going and committing some atrocities now? Because it seems like that's what people, the people who are the loudest 
about how we need to just turn Gaza into to gravel and then pave the thing over and make a giant parking lot. That's the kind of mindset that they are caught up in. And all I'm suggesting is, you know what, we're better than that. But the real scary thing is that the people who are being manipulated in that direction don't even realize that they're being propagandized and they're being manipulated, played upon, you know, their fears and their emotions into supporting things that under normal circumstances, under reasoning circumstances where they're actually using their minds, they would never support. So, I'm going to be sharing an article with you. In fact, I think I'll jump to it next. Candace McManaman talks about our addiction to screens is real and it's getting worse. And I'm not telling you, you know, that uh, you, if, you, if you're standing with Israel, you're a bad person. I'm not telling you that at all. Although there are people who will tell you, if you're not standing with Israel, you're not a good person. I'm just going to suggest that right now, propaganda is the rule. And anything that is coming to you from mass media sources is going to be questionable. It's going to be pretty thoroughly worked over by the time it gets to your eyes or your ears. So be a little bit critical in how you approach that information. And, and above all, this is, this is my recommendation. You don't need fear porn to get yourself worked up and ready to defend what's, what's good and proper. You don't need that. You don't need that artificial stimulus of seeing other people's lives ended or gore or whatever else it is that's coming out in those atrocity videos. And notice, too, you know, when those videos are, are aired, and frankly, there's a ton of them making the rounds on, on X, you know, then you've got to sit there and evaluate, okay, well, do I have sympathy for this person or who's sitting there, you know, holding pieces of a dead child? Do I have sympathy for them or do I, you know, condemn them? Okay, if you've reached the point where you've got to evaluate, you know, an innocent life or an innocent little body torn apart, you've got to decide, well, do I have sympathy or not? I'm telling you, 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 you need to, to step back a couple of steps, take a breath, and, and evaluate whether you're seeing things clearly. Not as a member of this team or a member of that team. Again, the whole false dilemma, you've got to choose one. Start with team humanity. Get yourself centered in your humanity and then move forward from there. It's okay to know this information, but if you're going to go around seeking it, don't be surprised if uh, you convince yourself that there are a lot more monsters out there than you thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I wanted to mention this uh, just because I'm going to be talking about uh, breaking free from our screens. And yes, I am as fully addicted to my screen, especially my phone, as anybody that I know. To the point now where, where I have a little bit of awareness, enough that I catch myself and I'm like, oh, I must have been bored. Because what was I doing? I'm reaching for my phone. I better check my phone, see if anything important has come up in the last few minutes. Ah, I do it constantly. And it's a little bit maddening because now I'm aware of it. But um, next week, I'm going to have uh, Jeffrey Einstein on the program. Jeff is the uh, quality of life 
resistance movement founder. And one of the big things he's going to talk about is, you know, why it's, it's okay to break that screen addiction. And I think he's got a great take. This is a message he's been sharing for quite some time. He's been a digital apostate, but uh, we'll have him on the show, um, I'm guessing, early to midweek next week. Very much looking forward to having him on there. If you haven't subscribed to his Substack, I will make sure you've got a link that you can follow in case you'd like to do that. Now, in the meantime, I've got an article here from, this is Candace McManaman, one of my favorite contributors on intellectualtakeout.org. Are we addicted to our screens? How can we break free? Listen to how she describes this. Habitually reaching into our purses or pockets to check our messages, staying up through the wee hours of the morning, scrolling on social media, hearing phantom phone vibrations. Yeah, guilty. These are all sure signs of a screen addiction. Now, she says, like most people in the world these days, I've struggled with controlling my use of screens and technology. But over the last couple of years, I have made a concerted effort to get screen addiction under control. After some trial and error and inevitable relapse, I came up with a three-step process to break my screen addiction. But she says, before we get to the three steps, we need to decide on at least three replacement activities we can engage in instead of being on the phone. Now, Generally speaking, we all have things we'd rather be doing than scrolling on our phones, so she says, make a list of those things. Pick some old familiar ones as well as a couple of completely new ones. For example, Candace says, when I delved into this process, I immediately chose classical drawing and reading as they've long time been interests of hers. She says, I also chose to list cooking and crocheting, which are activities I could do while caring for my two toddler sons. Now, she says, the other thing to consider is how much screen time we reasonably need. As much as I sometimes want to throw my smartphone out the window... I do need it to keep in contact with family members as well as for work tasks. To sort out screen addiction from necessary phone use, I simply estimated the time I need to check work emails and answer important family texts. Then I scheduled this half hour of time into my day and stuck to it. But don't worry too much if the time limit shifts a bit at the beginning. Sometimes a bit of trial and error is required. Now, she says, let's move on to the three basic steps of breaking a screen addiction. By the way, I don't know about you. Did you get a little pang of anxiety at the thought of this? I know I did. And I'm pretty sure that's that's probably more evidence of, oh, that's that's a clear screen addiction. Okay, Candace suggests, number one, dumb down your smartphone. Let's begin by taking as many apps and notifications off our phones as we can. Uninstall everything possible, especially those apps that are favorites to scroll on. She says, this is when I personally choose to delete, uh, chose to delete her social media accounts. And it took some extra digging to figure out how to delete them because most such sites would rather put us on pause than just let us leave entirely. And she says, it's also an opportune time to turn our phone on silent, which is to mute notifications, set timers on the remaining apps and arrange sleep mode options and add a grayscale screen. All of these little tweaks will dumb down our smartphone, making them less tempting to pick up. If we don't have all the apps notifying us to click and scroll, we'll quickly start putting the phone back down after inadvertently picking it up. Okay, that sounds like solid advice. Here's the second advice, the second piece of advice, I should say. Hide your phone. And she says, by this I mean embrace the out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. We rarely reach for things we can't see. So the next step is to put our phones somewhere where we can't see them. Why? 
because even with our new dumbly, newly dumbed down phones, we may find ourselves picking it up for no reason or just in case someone texted. Now, this can be a tough reality check. She says, I found myself picking up my phone every 45 minutes. Once I hid my phone by putting it in my dresser drawer, I stopped reaching for it because it wasn't nearby anymore. So we can't pick it up if we can't see it or reach it. So we can put our phones in, in a different room or shut away in a drawer. She says, I've even heard of spouses carrying each other's phones in their pockets so neither spouse can pull out a phone on a whim. The point is to get it out of our daily spaces. This can work to work for addictions to video games, television, iPads, and other screens as well. Number three, replace screen time with other activities. Let's take a look around our physical spaces. Where did we set our phones before they were hidden away? Candace McManaman says, when I put my phone out of sight, I suddenly noticed my nightstand was empty, the kitchen table was clear, my desk was screenless. We often put our phone on couches, counters, windowsill, windowsills rather, in our pockets. These spaces will now hold our replacement activities on our list from above. So it's very simple. We put one of our new activities where we used to put our phones. So for example, she'll put her library books on the nightstand, her crocheting on the kitchen table, and her sketchbook on her desk. Then, she says, when I absentmindedly reach for my phone, immediately I'm reminded of one of the things I actually wanted to do instead. Now this simple environmental change, she says, has been powerful. It not only subtly reminded me how often I reached for my phone, but also pushed me to pursue my real interests. Even five minutes previously wasted scrolling can be spent instead on something I love doing. One final thing to consider is documenting our experiences breaking screen addiction. When we record our progress and look back on it, we will be amazed at how our lives change. She says, I took the time to journal my experience, making a note at the end of every day to see how I felt and what I'd done. The first few days I found myself getting antsy and wanting to scroll on my phone, but that soon passed and it was as if a light came back on to illuminate my real life. She says, I didn't realize I'd felt so hurried, distracted, and irritable when I had unlimited screen time. Now I felt peaceful and relaxed. My focus is better, my mind clearer, and my attitude better. My relationships with family and friends have even improved. And on top of that, I now have the time to pursue my other interests. Those journal entries helped show me that screen addiction is insidious. It sneaks up on us. But clearly, it can be beat. Life is just waiting to be fully lived and fully embraced if we just put away our phones. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the challenge of this. I feel like, oh, that sounds like really good advice, but it also sounds like it could be hard. And I'm sure it is. Okay, it's, it's habit. Nowhere do I notice this more than, you know, waking up in the wee hours of the morning. You know, we call them the wee hours, right? And, you know, the first thing I got to do, well, I better reach for my phone. <laughs> better see anything important came in. It's hard to break those habits. Take, take notice the next time you're somewhere, you know, waiting for the wife shopping or just standing around waiting for somebody and you don't have anything particular to do. You don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. So what do you do? Out comes the phone. I'll just put my head down and just get engrossed in whatever's on the screen. It's tough. I've actually been trying to work on this at church just because I've too many times I've looked over and I'm like, man, every member of my family is sitting there with their phone out 
either playing a game or, you know, sending texts or, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're studying family history. I don't care. It's like everywhere we go, if we have any moment of downtime, our brains are automatically seeking for that screen. So I'll include a link to Candace McManaman's article. I'd encourage you to take a, take a closer look at it. Maybe consider some of the different things that she's offering here in place of simply indulging whatever it is we're looking for when we pick up that phone and start scrolling. I don't know, man. I, I love knowing what's happening in the world. And I love uh, some, some good, dank humor. But at some point, something's got to give. And I think I'd rather be the one calling the shots on that than having it imposed on me from outside. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, got a couple of great articles to share here in the last couple of segments. I don't know if you have noticed, but uh, the cost of everything seems to be going up. I know, weird. This first time I noticed this was the other day when I was out there uh, filling out the loan paperwork for a tank of gas. And I thought, you know, this is a lot like grocery shopping where I, you know, had to fill out, uh, you know, loan paperwork to buy a roast the other day. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Everything's getting so much more expensive. Now, here's, here's the, the crazy part, though. Yes, costs are going up. Yes, prices are going up. So why do politicians blame it on business owners? Well, these gas station owners, these grocery store people, they're just trying to get rich off the backs of people. That's why they're raising prices. I mean, normally people aren't that proud of their economic ignorance, but politicians will just put it out there. Well, Doug Casey was interviewed by International Man and talks about government scapegoating businesses for inflation. International Man starts the question by asking about uh, saying, thanks to rampant currency debasement, the price of everything has gone up recently. As the pain from inflation becomes a normal part of life in places like the U.S. and Canada, there are growing calls for politicians to do something. Recently, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau threatened to tax grocery stores if they don't lower their prices, accusing them of causing inflation and profiting from higher prices. To which International Man asks Doug Casey, what's your take on this? Doug Casey says Trudeau epitomizes in many ways all that's wrong with the kind of people who go into politics. Things are as expensive as they are partly because taxes take 20 to 30 percent of everybody's income when they earn it. Then when they spend it, they pay another 10, 20, even 30 percent in sales taxes and value added taxes. Add on the burden of regulations, which add to costs while decreasing the amount of production. Yeah, taxes and regulations are disastrous. But the big thing is is currency debasement. Governments are printing up money by the bushel because they believe in modern monetary theory, paying for what they want by simply printing money. People like Trudeau are the reason why food prices and all kinds of prices are as high as they are. Having caused a problem, they present themselves as a solution to the problem. Their solutions are typically counterproductive. Stupid, actually. Taxing grocery stores adds to their costs. If they're to stay in business, those taxes must be passed on to the consumer. Now, Trudeau's a criminal personality who should be punished for the evil he's doing says Doug Casey. On the other hand, he was popularly elected largely because he has name recognition from his nominal father and good looks from Fidel Castro, who's probably his actual sire. 
In any event, he's apparently what the majority of Canadians must prefer. So at this point, International Man says, while many third world countries have scapegoated business owners for rising prices, the next step is for them to pass laws regulating how businesses can price their products and services. Where does all this lead? Doug Casey says, well, as we've just discussed regarding Trudeau, government sticks its nose absolutely everywhere. That's because the type of people who go into government love power as well as making themselves famous and wealthy. Almost all economic problems originate with government intervention. He says the solution isn't more laws regulating how businesses can act and price their products, but less laws. And he says by less, I mean none at all. Government might subsidize milk, perhaps so it's an affordable dollar a gallon. That's a great idea. You can have all you want for a dollar, but there won't be any. It's an insoluble problem until people realize that the cause of the problem is the state itself. <laughs> but he says, fat chance. I'm, I'm not optimistic that's about to happen. International Man then says, well, we've recently seen prominent politicians and the media in the U.S. blame rising prices on businesses. They also blame supply chain problems, Vladimir Putin, so-called climate change, anything but the Federal Reserve and its currency debasement as the source of inflation. Why do the media and government mislead and gaslight people about inflation? Doug Casey answers, you and I realize that the only reason that we're not all naked grubbing for roots and berries is because business creates wealth. Businessmen are directly responsible for our high standard of living. Business is humanity's friend, not the enemy that government makes it out to be. But then again, business is now so hooked up and intertwined with government that you can no longer tell the two of them apart. This is the problem with Ayn Rand's writing. She saw businessmen as heroes for creating wealth, but in the real world, businessmen don't know anything about either economics or philosophy. Sad to say, they're not heroes. Few care about anything but becoming personally wealthy. It's easier for them to become wealthy by getting in bed with the state and having it pass laws to make their lives easier at the expense of the public. Unlike Rand's ideal heroes, business never defends itself on a moral basis. In sordid reality, there are typical whipped dogs who comply with everything the government dictates as long as they're tossed fat bones. The government's able to mislead and gaslight the public because people naturally believe authority, whether it's their parents, their teachers, their preachers, or whoever. And the government, through the media, is the ultimate authority. When the government alleges things people don't think, or who don't think, rather, or who, or who aren't independent thinkers, believe them. When the bad guys have authority, they naturally make themselves out as being good guys. The problem is that the people who want to govern are almost always Bad guys. Well, that one needs to burn itself into your mind right there. International Man then says, okay, in a separate but related development, U.S. cities are descending into crime-ridden hell holes. Businesses, including grocery stores, are fleeing in droves. In Chicago, the mayor has said the city will experiment with creating centrally controlled, state-run grocery stores to service areas where private grocers have left. The mayor has said, all Chicagoans deserve to live near convenient, affordable, healthy growth grocery options. We know access to grocery stores is already a challenge for many residents, especially on the south and west sides. His team calls it reimagining the role government can play in our lives by exploring a public option for grocery stores. And then the, he asks Doug Casey, what do you make of this? Doug Casey says it's possible, although in a highly competitive space, that the mayor of Chicago is the worst mayor in the country. 
even worse than his predecessor, the degraded Laurie Lightfoot. Incidentally, Chicagoans don't prenaturally deserve those things he mentions. Preternaturally, that is, deserve those things he mentions. The fact the, ed- the idiots elected this fool, this criminal, means they're just getting what they deserve. The government of Chicago has provided nothing but new highs in murders, robbery, taxation, and regulation. They put hundreds of thousands of citizens in vertical ghettos that they'll almost never be able to get out of. If they take it to the next level, by having government grocery stores, they'll have to be renamed food dispensaries, where the food will either be stolen or it'll be locked up behind plexiglass with armed guards. The way central cities are devolving, there will be no business anywhere. With government employees dispensing food, going shopping will be like visiting a DMV. International Man then asks, Where do you think this is all headed if current trends continue? What advice do you have for people on preparing for what is coming? Okay, listen to Doug Casey's answer. He says, Trends in motion tend to stay in motion until they reach a crisis, at which point things either get much worse or turn around and get better simply because they're unsustainable. The country is now like a poker player on tilt. Nothing changes until he goes bust, and that's always ugly. So there's not much any of us can do to change the trend in motion, which has been heading down for many years and now is accelerating downward. All you can do and what you should do is take care of yourself, your family, and your friends. As far as the food situation is concerned, you should take a note from the Mormons, which is to say, set aside six months' worth of food. Actually, as, as a Mormon, let me just clarify, it's, it's at least a year's worth of food and other things that you would need, toothpaste, so forth. Doug Casey says, if you live where it's possible, learn to grow a garden or perhaps raise a few chickens. Be as self-sufficient as possible so you don't have to rely on your local government food dispensary when things get really bad. And I think that's one of the big warning signs to watch for. When government starts to control the distribution of food or the production of food, okay, that's a big danger sign. And I'm not saying it's immediately that uh, that's the point you're going to descend into full-blown tyranny. It's more like you're setting up a situation in which turnkey tyranny can take place. If government has a greater hand in producing and distributing food, it's only a matter of time before someone with some real ambition comes to power and says, well, the way to get people to comply with what I need them to do is we make their food contingent upon their obedience to whatever it is I want them to comply with. See how that works? I mean, I look at, I look at the, the coming you know, central bank digital currencies and so forth, And it's very clear to me that the people who wanted control, the people who initiated the lockdowns, enforced the lockdowns, who tried to put pause on the entire economy, they're not repentant. They're going to come back and try to do the same thing again. But they're also more determined than ever to make it stick. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm ready to downgrade my standard of living and produce more of my own food and maybe go without some of the niceties in order to keep what remains of my freedom. Well, I don't know. That's a pretty big trade-off. It is. It's a very big trade-off. But I'd rather have the freedom than have the convenience. Does that make sense? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment for today's show. By the way, I'm going to just, uh, I'm going to take a moment here to, to strongly recommend the article of the day. This is from the Brownstone Institute. And I love this article. It's a very lengthy one. It's going to take you some time to read. Probably won't be able to do it unless you do it maybe on your lunch hour. But I want you to check out Paul Thacker's article on how the future of alternative media is unknown but critical. And it starts with a quote uh, from uh, an interview with a BBC journalist, Andrew Marr, and Noam Chomsky. And this BBC journalist, Andrew Marr, says, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? Noam Chomsky replies, I'm not saying you're self-censoring. I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is that if you believed something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. Oof. (laughs) I know, I don't agree with Noam Chomsky on a lot of stuff, but once in a while, that guy rears back and knocks it out of the park, and that's, that's one of those times. So, alternative media is becoming the place where more and more people can get the information that they need. And if you grew up watching the news or watching, you know, reading the newspaper and so forth, you can understand a lot of things have, have shifted. Even if you're trying to get a very broad mix of information, you know, there, there are many different sources out there. Even to define what the alternate media is, you know, you have to wonder, well, is Fox News, is that part of the alternate media? See, I would argue, no, that's, that's part of the mainstream ecosystem. But the media operates through five filters, according to Noam Chomsky. Media ownership, advertising, media elite, flack, meaning those who stray from consensus get attacked, and common enemy. They always create a boogeyman to corral public opinion and focus attention. Now, this article goes into a lot of detail. There's a lot of meat on this bone. But there is a need for alternative media. And I suspect that uh, within the sound of my voice, there are people, maybe you're one of them, who is considering starting alternative media. And it can, look, it could be a full-blown streaming network. It could be some digital platform on which you're creating content. It could just be a simple blog. But I would like to at least put a little uh, little bug of encouragement in your ear and tell you, if you feel like you need to speak up or you feel like there's, there's truth that I need to put out there in some way, I think you should do it. And I think you should embrace it and run with it and see where it leads you. There's not going to be one clear, true voice, you know, that's, that's cutting through everything. And that's the one we rely on to get all of our information. If the truth is going to get out there, it's going to be thousands and perhaps millions of smaller voices who will not be silenced and will not be intimidated. So hopefully you're one of those people. All right, moving on. Two other articles I wanted to touch on. This one just hit such a a nerve for me. This is from economist Peter Jacobson at the Foundation for Economic Education. The incandescent ban and the lie of LED efficiency. He's talking light bulbs. And this is one of my big pet peeves. I hate LED bulbs. I love the subtitle of of, uh, Peter's piece here. He says, not all of us have time to get a degree in electrical engineering to make sure our home doesn't look like the inside of an alien spaceship. 
Now he says, I think it, hap- it happened rather as I went to grab a new package of baby wipes from under the sink. I flipped on my bathroom light and noticed something strange. One of my three mirror light bulbs began flickering and ultimately settled at a barely luminous dim setting. My LED light went out. He says, the problem is I changed that light bulb about a month ago as memory serves. Aren't LED lights supposed to outlast the heat death of the universe or some unbelievably long amount of time? Under this guise and of, of energy efficiency, the Biden administration finally allowed a 2007 ban on incandescent light bulbs to go through at the end of July this year. Now, the problem is that LED lights are not more efficient in a meaningful economic sense. And he says, as my story illustrates, they don't necessarily last longer. To understand why, he explores some of the technical and economic details behind the lie, the, uh, lie of the mythical, efficient LED. Now, this is a great article, but the, the, the conclusion that Peter Jacobson comes to is, look, technological efficiency is not the way to properly evaluate the efficiency of a product. So how should we evaluate it? Well, he says, uh, when discussing efficiencies, it applies to people's choices. Economic efficiency is king. So the idea behind economic efficiency is there's lots of technologically feasible combinations of goods and services that can hypothetically be produced. The question is, which combination yields the most value? Economic efficiency is the criterion that separates the highest valued use of scarce resources from all other possible combinations. So how is this point determined? By the consumers. So if consumers value frozen ice cream enough, they'd be willing to pay more for an ice cream truck with a freezer. Those higher prices enable the truck owner to buy the higher energy costs associated with running the freezers. Same thing is true with light bulbs. Who pays for an inefficient incandescent light bulb? The homeowner who installs the light bulb does in the form of higher energy bills. So how would we know if the better or at least more consistent lighting is worth the higher energy use? Well, if the consumer chooses an incandescent bulb over an LED bulb, they're confirming they value the services of the incandescent bulb even after accounting for the cost of using more energy. It's kind of like voting with your wallet. So if LED light bulbs are truly, unquestionably superior... You wouldn't have to pass a law stopping consumers from purchasing incandescent bulbs. Consumers would make the switch themselves to save money. Good ideas don't require force, as they say. Peter Jacobson says the fact that a law was needed to displace incandescent bulbs highlights a simple truth. On many margins, LED lights are frankly worse for consumers, and all the bureaucratic gobbledygook in the world will not change that fundamental fact. I love it. I feel vindicated. Thank you, Peter. It's about time somebody said something about that. And yes, I wish I had hoarded dozens, if not hundreds, of incandescent bulbs so that I could go into the future being a proud consumer of excess electricity to the tune of, you know, a few bucks a month maybe. But being able to enjoy warm, usable light. I really don't like the LEDs. All right, one final note here. I know when you hear about blockchain, most often it's in the context of cryptocurrency. But did you realize that something intriguing is happening with Bitcoin? J.B. Shirk has an article on AmericanThinker.com that talks about this. He says, what started as a series of perplexing data inscriptions containing classified files from the U.S. government has now been confirmed by Bitcoin magazine. 
as an ongoing effort to cement information in the public record beyond the reach of government censorship. So some anonymous guardian of free speech has begun using Bitcoin to republish all of the information originally published by Julian Assange's WikiLeaks back in 2010. It's codenamed Project Spartacus, and it seeks to take advantage of several inherent Bitcoin attributes. Number one, it utilizes Bitcoin's Ordinals protocol that allows users to add personalized data to units of the cryptocurrency's blockchain. Number two, because data within integrated parts of the blockchain cannot be subsequently removed, it forms a part of the cryptocurrency's permanent record. And number three, because of the because the blockchain of transactions operates on a decentralized global network of sovereign nodes, there is no tech CEO or other middleman who can intervene to do the government's censorship bidding. So decentralized blockchain technology, in other words, is about much more than cryptocurrencies. It's actually a powerful tool that will allow ordinary people to evade government authority. And he says Project Spartacus is just the beginning. Imagine new social media networks built from decentralized blockchains of information. Imagine entirely new internet operating beyond the reach of corporate search engines, regulated addresses, and government permissions. With no corporation in control of the networks or in singular possession of communicated data on privately held servers. The, pro- the problem of state-directed censorship disappears. No longer could corporate oligarchs operate in concert with government dictators to silence public dissent and magnify government propaganda. No longer would it matter what the Marxist globalists at Facebook or Google think is true or what they think should falsely be presented as truth. Once ordinary people have a dependable workaround technology that allows them to share information free from Big Brother's menacing intervention. Discreetly, shared Samizdat has returned, and it will soon run on decentralized blockchain. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty positive development. So I'll include the link to J.B. Shirk's article on AmericanThinker.com. You can find it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a few moments, look around. If you see what you like, click the subscribe button, and I'll send you a copy of those show notes each and every day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.